Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. There we go. Okay. So, welcome. I'm Christy Ivanoff. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I have the privilege this morning of sharing um, from the Word of God. Uh, I'm sitting here this morning with my whole family. And for those of you who know us, uh, my, all my adult children are home um, for the Christmas uh, vacation. Um, my one daughter lives here and my two sons uh, are home and my new daughter-in-law is with us. And we've had a great time this last week. And I want to introduce my message this morning um, with three conversations that we've had this week um, as an introduction. So uh, first of all, my husband Curtis, who led worship this morning, um, earlier in the week was lamenting, I use that word lightly, lamenting, that um, the radio stations just quit playing Christmas music like cold turkey. Like December 25, December 26, no more Christmas music. And if you know Curtis, Curtis loves Christmas music and starts playing it before Thanksgiving if we let him. And uh, Christmas music was in our house the whole season. And so he was lamenting that uh, Christmas music had stopped on the radio. Now, another conversation happened at the Anchorage Museum. We took a trip on uh, Thursday or Friday to the Anchorage Museum. Now, when my kids were younger, we spent most of our time on the first floor in the Imaginarium, the Discovery Room, with all the interactive science stuff. But now that my children are older, we started on the fourth floor and walked all the way through every floor and looking at the different exhibits and, and all the different things that are there. And, we, and it, was, it, was really, it was really wonderful. And so before we went to the Discovery area at the end of our trip, we stopped for coffee and uh, had coffee down there in the, in the lobby and uh, talked about what have we seen and what have we enjoyed. And um, uh, my daughter-in-law, Izzy, uh, mentioned that she really enjoyed the paintings, especially from the Romantic period. And if you've been to the Anchorage Museum, there's um, a beautiful collection of, of paintings um, that, that represent um, the Western romantic, Romanticism um, style. Um, and, uh, but she also said that she really appreciated too how the exhibit was especially purposeful to include all different types of, um, of art, um, painting, sculpture, um, and from different perspectives. And in fact, the uh, website says that this is very intentional. And so um, the Art of the North Galleries, this is according to the website in the Rasmussen Wing, present the museum's art collection from perspectives of American art and an international North. Painting, sculpture, photography, video, and other media are varied perceptions of the Northern landscape and wilderness through historical and contemporary depictions of both land and people. Um, the galleries are offered a compelling narrative for the North. They have documentary works alongside romantic landscapes by 19th and 20th century painters, as well as contemporary artists. Um, who for the North is a place in transition at risk and altered by humankind. There's such a variety of things there to help um, the person visiting us learn more about Alaska, the North, from many, many different perspectives. So that was the second conversation we had. The third conversation happened in our living room. Uh, we were sitting there in the planners, and my son Nathan just said, Hey, Mom, do you think 
Silent night. Do you think it was really a silent night? <laughs> Reflecting on the Christmas song that we sing, was Jesus' birth, was it really like that? Do you think it was really silent? All is calm, all is bright. And so we began talking about some of the different um, elements of what probably really happened um, in contrast. So what do these three conversations have to do with my message this morning? Well, first of all, the Christmas church, the Christmas in the church calendar goes until January 5th. And so though the Christmas music has quit playing on the radio station, we are not going to stop as we think about the nativity of Jesus this morning. The second thing is like the museum that includes various perspectives, we are going to look at a perspective that's often not considered in its entirety in our Christmas readings or in our Christmas pageants. We're going to be looking at Matthew's version, Matthew's um, recount of the nativity story this morning. My uh, good friend Scott Pitch was over yesterday with his family eating brunch with us, and uh, I told him I was preaching this morning. He's also a pastor, and he said, oh, what are you preaching on? I said, oh, I'm preaching on Matthew 2, uh, Matthew's version of the nativity. He was like, really? <laughs> really? Because that's not usually the text, at least in its entirety, that we look at for Christmas. But I feel like um, Matthew's version offers us um, some beautiful texture and depth to help us understand what was going on um, in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people at the time in their world, and the reality that not all was calm or bright in that situation. So, who was Matthew? Matthew was one of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector who had gotten up from his tax booth and followed Jesus when Jesus called him. And as he wrote, he had in mind as well a Jewish audience at the time. Matthew's purpose in his gospel was to show that God has kept his ancient promises to Israel, life and death and resurrection of the Messiah. Ten times throughout his book are quotes that Matthew refers to the Old Testament to make his point. And five of them are in the first two chapters of Matthew. The story of Jesus is utterly continuous with Abraham, with David, and the whole history of God's chosen people, Israel. Now, I've titled this, this uh, sermon, Matthew's Insights. And why have I titled it Matthew's Insights? Well, one, it's from Matthew's, Matthew's viewpoint. Um, we have four Gospels, Matthew and Luke include details of Jesus' birth and childhood. Mark and John do not. They each have different purposes for writing and are, come from a different perspective. And it's Luke's gospel account that we often read um, on Christmas Eve and what we base many of our Christmas pageants and things on. Um, and you'll see that Matthew's is a little different. But Matthew's insight was, was for the readers of his time and, and remembering that um, Matthew, the gospel, our scriptures weren't written to us. They had a specific audience in mind, but they were written for us. And so this morning I want to uh, look at some of the things that Matthew highlights. And what's interesting as I study this text is in that um, Matthew, as he introduces these characters and the plot that is around Jesus' birth, um, the people, 
not only is he recounting it for history's sake, but he's setting a, a, a precedent. He's developing a theme that he will develop through the rest of his gospel. Now, we won't go through all of that today, but I will mention a little bit of that, of what he was hoping to do in sharing these particular details um, and, how he'll deter and how he'll develop that into the rest of his gospel. All right, so let's start with the scripture. We're going to break it up into three different sections this morning. Um, the first um, is the end of chapter one. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce, divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So I've um, entitled this section from Matthew's Insight, The New Righteousness. Luke's gospel gives us insight more from Mary's perspective. Mary's perspective includes some of the things that happened before, even with John the Baptist and, and the coming of his, his name and Mary's time with her cousin. Um, we have the beautiful uh, song that Mary wrote in her response to the angel coming to her. But in Matthew, we have more about Joseph. Now, in the genealogy in Matthew 1 that I haven't read, Matthew lists generations from Abraham through to David, and then David to the exile to Babylon, and then from the, Babel, the, Exonian, the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Fourteen generations in each segment to help our, the Jewish audience that he was writing for connect that Jesus had come as the Messiah had been predicted through the line of David. And Joseph, his father, was in this lineage as well. As a devout Jew, Joseph knew that the law was what defined how he should be living. Joseph, according to scripture, was truly faithful to the law. But in this scenario, he ends up disregarding the punishment that was required by the law for Mary's circumstances, assuming that she had become pregnant through an adulterous relationship. To follow the letter of the law would result in Mary either be putting to death by stoning as to purge the evil from among you, as it's quoted in Deuteronomy. But there was an escape clause for someone like Joseph who didn't want to take such drastic measures. Since betrothal or engagement was binding as marriage, Joseph could have divorced Mary quietly by issuing a bill of divorce and sending her away from his house, the very thing that he decided to do. 
And as we read this in just a few lines, though, we, we must think of what Joseph must have been going through, um, the confusion, um, the pain, anger um, that he experienced as he wrestled with all these options. But the angel of God convinced Joseph in a dream not to follow the law. Rather, he was not only supposed to stay betrothed to Mary, but was commanded to take her home as his wife. Now, this is something that the, Judean, um, the Judeans were known to do in their marriage customs, but Galileans didn't do this. They didn't take their bride home um, before and live with them before they uh, were, had their official marriage ceremony. So in many respects, Joseph appears to be a lawbreaker. He took his pregnant fiance home to live with him. But to those who knew the inside story, Joseph, Mary, and God, Joseph was a righteous man, doing exactly what God required, even waiting to consummate the marriage until after the baby was born. Joseph did what is right, despite how it looked. Now, this theme of a new righteousness will be developed thoroughly throughout the book of Matthew, starting with Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that just come following this this, this passage. And it's in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, ordinary people in that day revered the apparent righteousness of the religious leaders and could not ever imagine matching them, much less surpassing them in their piety. So Jesus shocks them by stating that entrance into the God's kingdom was available only to those whose righteousness did indeed exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Who then could be saved? The problem lay in equating righteousness with external piety. A common, under, a common understanding of the word both then and now. But the word righteousness throughout the Bible always denotes right relationships, right relatedness with God and the people around us. We'll see that righteousness through the New Testament is more closely linked with mercy and acts of forgiveness in our relationships with others as we have received mercy and forgiveness from God. Charles Talbert, um, a scholar who has written extensively on the Sermon on the Mount, um, has found a few, a few common um, traits of what this new righteousness involves. Instead of formal obedience, it aims for radical obedience from Matthew 5, 21 to 48. And the right, this righteousness does not seek human approval, but rather God's approval. This righteousness is neither greedy nor anxious, but trust in God's providential goodness. And this righteousness is a lifestyle that walks the talk and is critical not of others, but of, of self as a mean towards self-awareness and growth with God. Talbert says it this way, for Matthew, living with a surpassing righteousness means faithfully living within a covenant relationship that encompasses both vertical and horizontal dimensions and is only possible if such a life is divinely enabled. Left to our own resources, we cannot be faithful. So living justly is as much a matter of receiving as it is of giving. And we see this exemplified in Joseph as he interacted with God and God's commands. 
All right, let's take the next section, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem was with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So Matthew is actually the one that writes about the Magi. Luke does not include this in his account, but it gets transported from Matthew, um, the scriptures, into our, into our Christmas, into our Christmas uh, pageants and the things that we focus on. For Matthew, he introduces these characters, Herod and the Magi. Now, uh, Herod was a ruthless um, king. He was kind of a puppet king in that actually it was under the Roman Empire. And so Caesar was truly king, but had appointed um, Herod. Actually, Mark Antony had appointed Herod to be the king of, um, of the Judean area. And Herod um, slaughtered the last remnants of the dynasty that had preceded him. He executed more than half of the Sanhedrin. He killed 300 court officers who had gotten out of hand. He executed his own wife, Marianne, her mother, Alexandra, and his sons, three of them. Finally, as he lay dying, he arranged for all of the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled in the, the Hippodrome and killed as soon as his own death was announced. He was a man of ruthless cruelty. And he had a fanatical neurosis about any competition. It's quite, it is quite in character that he would order the execution of the male children in Bethlehem. It was not a big place. There would probably have been around 30 or less infants of that age. And to him, their deaths would have not made a ripple on the history of the day. He was an illegitimate king from the Jews' point of view. He was an Edomite, meaning he was from the lineage of Esau rather than Jacob. And Abraham's promise was that the king, the Messiah, would come through the lineage of Jacob. This section I've called the new king and kingdom. 
because we see that the king of the time who ruled with a tyrannical hand, he was incredibly lavish and built all kinds of um, temples to, he actually built the, the, the Jewish temple as well, but temples to any, many, many gods lived quite lavishly, and yet the king, the Messiah, would come born of a virgin in a very humble place, in a humble space, and would rule um, in a different way. Now the wise men are introduced as well. And from the beginning of his gospel, Matthew gives prominence to the theme of the Gentiles and the Gentiles' inclusion. The Magi themselves were Gentiles from the East. Most scholars believe that they would have come from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. As I said, Matthew talks about the, the Gentiles. He includes four Gentile women in his genealogy. Um, and as well, the Magi are the first Gentile characters in the story of Jesus. And they respond positively to Jesus, the Messiah, by worshiping him, foreshadowing other Gentiles of faith who will populate Matthew's story to come which in turn will lead to the final and great commission of the gospel in which Jesus exhorts the followers to disciple all the nations. Matthew indicates across the breadth of his gospel, starting with the Magi, that the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel leads to the inclusion of all nations in the coming kingdom. All right, let's go to the next last section. When they had gone... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said throughout of the prophet through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Jesus, Israel's deliverer, the Messiah, has come. So this escape to Egypt was an historical event that happened. And it was recorded, so we would know that. But it was also highly symbolic. And Matthew means for the readers to understand this. It was a fulfillment of Israel's history. Israel became a nation after being called into Egypt. And the exodus from Egypt was the central point in the history of this nation that was becoming a people of God. Pharaoh tried to destroy the people in Egypt, even ordering the killing of baby boys. But Moses was protected and years later brings his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now Herod, a new Pharaoh, 
has tried to kill the firstborn Jesus. And in his rage and frustration, he slaughtered other innocent, other innocent children. He failed to kill the Savior, just as Pharaoh had failed to kill Moses. Eventually, Moses brought the children out of Israel, out of the land of bondage and death. And Moses' successor, Jesus, was to bring the people out of a worse bondage and a worse death, the death of sin. Jesus is cast here as a successor of Moses. He came to save his people from their sins. And we shall see him in that role later on all throughout the book of Matthew and the Gospels. For Matthew, too, wrote his gospel in five sections that are clearly marked. Uh, it's more obvious in the, in the uh, original text. Just as Moses wrote the five books of the law. Here Jesus is seen as the counterpart to Moses. Not so much in revelation, but is in rescue. He is going to usher in the new exodus. And that is why his time in Egypt is so important in the symbolism in this gospel. So Matthew's version of our favorite holiday is hardly recognizable for the star, except for the star and the wise men. Joseph nearly divorcing Mary, Herod's diabolical ploy, the slaughter of the innocents, the flight to Egypt, waiting for a wicked king to die. None of these make the cover of our Christmas cards. The whole unsavory story of Herod's activity in all this is a reminder of how deeply opposition to Jesus can be rooted in the hearts of people who are not prepared to allow his gentle rule to control them. If we are determined to get our own way at all costs, we will go to any lengths to eliminate all trace of Jesus and his claims on our lives. But Matthew has a word of encouragement about opposition. Opposition is inevitable, but it will never in the providence of God be allowed to quench God's mission. There was every possibility of quenching the Messiah. His mother Mary might have been stoned as an adulteress. He might have been killed by Herod. He might have been lost in Egypt. But no, God's hand was upon him. Opposition could not extinguish God's light. What an encouragement that would have been to Matthew's readers. And it spurs us on today. We remember that Matthew's purpose is to show that God has kept his, prom his ancient promises to Israel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And he too keeps his promises to us today. I'd like to close with a quote from uh, N.T. Wright. He says, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, was born then in a land and at a time of trouble, tension, violence, and fear. Banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. At the same time, in this passage and several others, Matthew insists that we see in Jesus, even when things are at their darkest, the fulfillment of scripture. This is how Israel's redeemer was to appear. This is how God would set about liberating his people and bringing justice to the whole world. No point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is.
Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for your ancient promises, and we thank you for the Gospels and the various authors and writers and their backgrounds and the texture they bring us to help us understand what it really meant for Jesus to leave his heavenly home and to be to make his home among us in the flesh in a world of pain. And we thank you, God, for the new righteousness that you've called us to, that we can have through our faith in Christ and his work on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you have included all nations in your salvation. We thank you that no opposition can thwart your eternal purposes. And we thank you that you are God with us in our own times of chaos, pain, uncertainty. And we thank you, Lord, that you have come and will come again to make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.